Today's guest actually has been on the podcast before. I got such great feedback and so many requests to have him back for more stories. I did. I brought him back. Today's guest is Keith Banks. He's an ex-undercover drug squad officer from the 80s from Queensland Police Force. His stories are amazing. If you haven't listened to the original podcast episode that I did with him, please go back and listen to that. It's titled after his book, which is Drugs, Guns and Lies. He's an absolutely remarkable person. Today's stories are actually post his undercover career in that world. Uh, we do reference that original uh, podcast episode, though, so it will help you for context, but it's not necessary. You can listen to this one alone. He's a remarkable human being. I'm either laughing or I'm picking my jaw up from the ground because his stories are so remarkable. Please, guys, enjoy. We're turning these into a series of episodes, so enjoy. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in. So bring on the inspiration. Yeah, not bad. You're busy boiling your water at the moment? No, we're actually in the area that's not affected. Oh, really? Oh. Lucky you. Yeah, double check that in case Jennifer was trying to poison me, but um, <laughs> no, it's all, it's all good. So, in fact, I just went and used the tap. So, you guys boiling and buying yeah, water and stuff? Yeah, everyone's panic buying. I don't know why. Just boil it. It's not that big of a deal. Ah, uh, that's exactly what we were talking about this morning. Because let me think, what's the the technical term? Is oh yeah, morons. <laughs> it's a lot of <laughs> it's a lot of wasted plastic. Ah, uh, god, yeah, yeah. It's it's called the Dunning Kruger effect. I don't know whether you're familiar with that or not. No, <laughs> I, I've actually been, I had a, I have a new training manager at work, so I put her onto it yesterday. It's it's actually it's quite legitimate. It's two American psychologists, Dunning and Kruger, clearly, um, and in essence, their theory or their psychological observation about behaviour, in essence, is that stupid people don't know they're stupid. <laughs> but ignorance is bliss as well. Keith, oh so. well, yeah, it's it's the whole bell curve of you know outliers and things. But it's really interesting reading. So you you essentially go because they're talking about you know it's the um the cognitive ability of you know certain people uh is that they don't understand that they're in cape that sorry they have an inflated view of their ability blah 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 ergo stupid people don't know they're stupid so when you say how hard can it be for the majority <laughs> it actually is it's quite hard because they just don't have the ability to do it they think they can anyways um, this is how I spend my days. <laughs> <laughs> this is lockdown. I'm so over this lockdown, I tell you what. Oh, oh God, yeah. Yeah, oh, don't get me started on that. <laughs> but you've done um, well with all the podcasts you've been on. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm actually becoming quite quite well-versed and quite relaxed about podcasts now. This um, is good. Yeah, yeah. No, it's like just having a big chat. It um, is. That's the goal. Yeah, I, I, so Gary Jubelin, I don't know whether you've listened to the ones I did with him. but um, I, I listened to um, a little bit of it, just long enough to know that our chat was better and then I logged off. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to make the observation that uh, when I was in, because I actually got to Sydney before border shut down, and, um, and I went in to record it with him and he had two beers on the table. This is very civilised. <laughs> It's also an old coppers trick, isn't it? That's Get them exactly, part with alcohol for them. That's exactly right. I made sure he drank just as much as I did, though. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, 
so I thought I thought today, um, given I, I'm actually oh, I don't know how far away I'm from finishing it when I sort of my, my writing process is quite intermittent, um, but I'm probably a couple of months away from just tidying up the second book. Yeah, and uh, and this is so I was I was actually working on what we're going to talk about today. If you're happy with it. And yeah. um and it was uh in the world of tactical policing, so special operations. That's fine. Okay. Um but it was all about in, in the eighties, people don't understand, you know, sorry, younger people don't understand or have any knowledge of rather, um, the amount of armed robberies and the prevalence of armed robberies that happened in the eighties. You know, it, Gary and I were talking about this as well. You you could pretty much bank two armed robberies a day. Um banks and uh, armoured cars and, you know, clubs and that sort of stuff. So um, as I was thinking, thinking about... I think that cop- carried into um, the, the 90s as well, the yeah, early 90s. Because yeah, yeah, I remember as a yeah. kid hearing yeah. hearing about all the armed robberies and stuff. Um, Mark Dapen, who's a, uh, a journalist and writer, calls it the golden age of armed robberies, not to glorify it, but just to say that in that sort of 10 years, that was when the very effective crooks like Russell Cox um, came to the fore, Brandon Abbott, you know, the postcard bandit, all those guys really planned, and I have a bit of a grudging respect for them because they planned their um, their jobs very effect- very effectively. Hmm. So were you involved in any of these cases? Um, not with Cox. Oh, so yeah, we, <clears throat> yeah, that's a whole interesting story. So are we going to start recording or have we started recording? We're already recording. Oh, excellent. <laughs> okay, so you'll... Uh... <laughs> So you'll no doubt be providing the appropriate edits. I love that. Um, you snuck up on me. Um, well, I hit record as soon as people like start because <laughs> I love the banter at the start. So often that's some of the best sort of yeah, best true. Stuff. No, I like yeah. it. See, it is like having a chat. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, see, Russell Cox. Russell Cox was his real name was Melvin Schnitzling. Melvin John Schnitzling, I think. Um, he was uh, he was the only person, mate? No, he was one, I think, the first person to escape from Long Bay Jail, uh, Katingle, which was an okay. escape-proof jail. And uh, and Cox actually um, hung by one arm and and, saw, and had a um, smuggled in hacksaw blade and cut his way out of Katingle over a period of time because the only, from memory, the only light, natural light that came into the jail was in the exercise yard, which was maybe two or three suburban garages um in area and uh-huh. there was a an, an area in there that wasn't covered by cameras and cox figured that out and uh and he i don't know how long it took him but he just over time cut through the bars by hanging from one arm um chinning himself up cutting through he was superbly fit and actually escaped uh, got onto the roof scaled you know two or three um uh, barriers, etc., and then made his way off into the night. And he was on the run for eleven years. He was a very, very professional um, armed robber, a very professional crook, quite violent um, as they were. But most coppers had a grudging respect for him because he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, he ran. He was probably a marathon runner, ran every day, um, practiced yoga, was a vegetarian, you know, very, and just was a total consummate professional. So. We um, we never crossed paths. Well, we did cross paths, but uh, I never actually saw him, and, and that sounds a bit weird. But it was about – he escaped in 1977, so it was about 1984, I think. Um, we were in the ta- – I was in the tactical police area then, so special weapons and operations. And, um, and we were tasked to sit 
uh, in a surveillance van and sort of stacked around, you know, not undercover, but certainly covertly with all of our blacks on and our bloody machine guns and shotguns and whatever. Um, Was the van just a plain van or yeah. did you have like some sort of electrical, you know, it's like cover in terms of yeah. Joe Blow's electrical yeah, that's exactly. or plumbing or something? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. We were using the surveillance, uh, the BCI, Bureau of Criminal Intelligence, were the surveillance teams in those days. And they had exactly that. They had an old electric or an electrician's van uh, that was kitted out with, you know, surveillance equipment inside. So we were sitting, I think there were maybe three or four of us in that van, and then we had, you know, other teams all around the um, the railway yards. They, they were called M-A-I-N-E, Main Railway Yards in Brisbane, um, because payrolls in those days were delivered in cash, and there was a substantial payroll being delivered um, to the uh, head office for payment of all the staff. Can't tell you how much it was, probably 100k or so. Um, and the information detectives from the armed robbery squad had was that Cox and his associates were going to hit the van. So that's the sort of things that we did in those days. So, we, you know, we, we'd just be there to, to do what was called a takeout. In the event that that happened, we'd be emerging from the van, pointing weapons at the baddies, and hopefully they'd give up. Or maybe they wouldn't. Um, so we, I think we did this for, God, five or six days in a row. Um, and and I remember the uh, the senior sergeant was briefing us this particular morning. He said, now, listen, I know we've been doing this day in, day out with no result. Don't get lax. This could be the day. So we're sitting in the van, you know, just whiling away the time, going, oh, God, you know, when's this going to finish? The van, the um, payroll arrived, and then we heard the surveillance guys saying, there's a green valiant that's paying attention to the area. Someone needs to uh, have a look at it. And two detectives from the armed robbery squad intercepted this green valiant, and it was Cox. For back in the 80s, you know, there wasn't a lot of tactical training for general police, including detectives. We were certainly trained in how to intercept vehicles and how to be tactically aware, but the average copper wasn't. And when they pulled him over, they just sat in the car and, uh, you know, they were told oh, one of them was going to get out and go and talk to him. Cox emerged from the driver's side, walked up and produced a 357 magnum revolver and uh threatened to kill them um they had their firearms in a briefcase in the back seat and again cops so just were these, sorry yeah, Keith, were these general you said that they were um robbery police but then you yeah. said that the general police didn't have enough uh, much as much training so were they mm. general police or the no, armed no, robbery police? no they were detectives but what i mean general oh, so i should have said generally police didn't have a lot of tactical training including okay. including detectives you know okay they, they just it wasn't it wasn't at the forefront of most cops' minds, and I've written about that in in my book. Where, you know, it was it was interesting because um, there wasn't there wasn't the prevalence of armed robbery. If police had been killed in the line of duty, police had been shot in the line of duty, but not often. So, you know, there was there was still a bit of an attitude that ah, oh, well, yeah, I'll have a gun. It's got five bullets in it, and and often I'd hear people say, ah, oh, if you need any more than five bullets, you're really in trouble. Well, yeah, you would be, so that's why you should carry more. But um, it was just that really laid-back attitude. Yeah. So, so when these two particular detectives, and, and they were friends of mine, I knew them, I knew them reasonably well, um, when they pulled him up, they were quite laid-back about it, and that gave him the opportunity to, to hold them at gunpoint, and they actually thought they were going to be killed. Cox was a violent man. Um, I still think to this day the reason he didn't shoot them 
was because he knew that if you killed a cop, um, cops would go 150% on the job. Yeah, they'd work 24 yeah. hours a day till they found you, and it would be very likely they'd blow your head off. That was the reality of the world in those days. So he and we're um, talking we're talking back in the eighties, not yeah, so yeah. much modern day. Yeah, yeah, back in the eighties. Yeah, it was it was um, it was a violent time in policing. It was around the late eighties. You may remember that the Victoria Police shot something like eleven people in two years, and 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 that just you know the violence just kept escalating. It happened in Queensland as well. Nobody shot at us until the late eighties. Then the first shooting I was involved in, where one of my my team were killed was killed um it just started to escalate after that but this this was before that do you think though that that's because guns were more prevalent like they hadn't been outlawed in australia yet so do you think it was because that they had easier access to the firearms therefore it was more violent oh um well cox had an arsenal um and and those weapons were stolen they weren't purchased legally yeah um but to take your point yeah, the, the gun laws were really lax. And, you know, you could go and buy, and I think we've discussed this before, you could go and buy a two two three rifle from Kmart. Um, so the fact that there were gun shops that had a vast array of high-powered firearms um, made them easy targets or good targets for crooks. So mm. when they, um, you know, when they would break into them, they could, they could walk away with um, a 7.62, uh, assault rifle, you know, military specifications. So, I'm we, glad you clarified that was military because I had no idea what you were talking yeah, about. <laughs> I, I still tend, I still tend to lapse into all of that, you know, technical um, tactical, jargon, tactical, technical <laughs> stuff. All these years later, yeah. Um, so, essentially, a very high-powered weapon, um, okay. you know, with with thirty round magazines, thirty shot magazines, that sort of thing. Um, okay. you know, very similar to what you see Americans, you know carrying it as massacres in the states now with that, that they were just easily readily available and you didn't need a license it's it might it boggles the mind you know that any joe blow could walk into any shop buy a high-powered weapon and walk out without even producing a driver's license you know so um so yeah crooks were crooks were very very well armed and um and when cox held these two up um stole their firearms and handcuffed them to their own car which embarrassed them as well as terrified them and drove off. Um, mm. We were we were immediately dispatched as part of the search for him, and we kept missing him. We we raided a particular house, um, and this happened all day. He he had he had a massive network of safe houses, and um, and we never knew. Or sorry, as a ta as tactical police, you weren't told why you were going somewhere. You were simply told there's an address, hit it. So we actually found a a vehicle there that he'd abandoned about twenty minutes before. And we forced open the boot and we found inside the boot two handguns, a very high-powered um, Heckler & Koch, which is a German um, brand of firearm, a Heckler & Koch rifle, 7.62 caliber, now that you know that's very high-powered, um, and a couple of shotguns. And that's what he left behind. So you can imagine what he kept with him. You know, he, he had firearms caches all over the country. Very, very professional. And... Um, we didn't catch him that time, and obviously. Um, about a year later, we were dispatched to drive to a little tiny town called Windora, which is way in the middle of nowhere in the Queensland bush. I think there's a population of maybe 110 people. And there was a farmhouse outside Windora. Um, so we, 
we were tasked, uh, we were briefed on that. That's where Cox was believed to be with his de facto, so it's a cop thing, isn't it, de facto, um, his de facto partner, and um, who interestingly was a, what we call a clean skin. She'd been a nurse. She had no criminal record at all. Um, just met him and fell in love with him and then decided to go on the run with him. And uh, he'd been at this farmhouse. About a day before, a light plane had flown over the top of the farmhouse and Cox was so switched on and um, and careful and paranoid that he thought that was the police. So he just did the whole grab everything you've got in, in two minutes um, and left with his partner. How did you find out about the light plane going over if that was not the police? Uh, well, we raided the place and we raided it uh, 24 hours after he'd gone and we went in hard. Um, and by that, I mean crashed in the doors, weapons and, and so on. And no. uh, and we interviewed, or not we, the detectives interviewed the um, uh, the owners of the farm and they'd actually said that. Oh, so he wasn't owning the farm. He was just like a farmhand yeah. staying there. No, he, they actually oh. knew who he was. So they were, um, they were hiding him and, and assisting him. And that's what I mean. Oh. He had a network of people all over the country. So they were acti- They actively knew who he was. Mm. And was hiding him. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So wow. um. So never never actually got to meet him. I wanted to. Um. <laughs> as any any tactical cop probably would, they would have looked forward to that opportunity to take down a a good crook. Um. And he was then he was caught in Doncaster, Doncaster shopping town, in in Victoria, in Melbourne, yeah, in Melbourne, yeah. Um. In 1988. Um, he and uh, another SKP, Raymond John Denning, um, were uh, about to commit an armed robbery on an armoured car. And the, um, the Victoria Armed Robbery Squad, who actually were better tactically trained than, than Queensland, um, they actually intercepted them. There about nine shots fired. Um, they, grabbed, they grabbed them both and Cox said to one of them, well, you don't know who you've got yet, but you'll find out soon. And um, yeah, big coup. So this was 11 years he was on the run. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think it was the longest escapee, actually. So the longest period of time um, to not be caught. What rank were you in the in the Queensland Police when you were going through the farmhouse and stuff like that? Oh, I was a senior constable. So I was, I was in full-time tactical then. I'd left undercover. I'd gone back to... Um, sorry, I'd left undercover, I'd gone to uniform, I'd applied for the criminal investigation branch, been accepted, went through various squads there, um, and back into the drug squad. Then I went, I was a divisional detective, and there was a, um, a formation of a very small full time corps of tactical police in those days. Um, now it's, you know, now you've got the special operations group that are, God knows how many of them there are. And, and every state has its own massively full-time section. But back in those days, it was very unusual. So I think they started with maybe four of us, and uh, and I was approached to um, be one of those full-time um, capacity people. Because we, we were all part-timers, so we trained about four days a month, and, you know, we just we were called out when necessary. Um, so I jumped at it because I really wanted to be on the sharp end of policing, and this is where the sharp end was. Um, it's interesting that you wanted to be on the sharp end of policing after everything that you'd gone through as an undercover drugs detective. Mm. Yeah. Like that's that's interesting that you still, like to me as an outsider, you've gone through some stuff. You had, for those that haven't heard the first episode with Keith, go please go back and listen to it because it's about his undercover um, 
experience as a drugs squad officer undercover um and one of that i think the most sort of poignant was let's knock something off my desk um one of the most poignant um stories was when you had to watch a young man shoot up and he subsequently um, yeah yeah that was uh that was shane he was um i realized he was i found out later he was only 14 years old and yeah that that was terrible um but i well see the thing was though fiona when I left undercover and went back into the normal world or resurfaced into the normal world, I missed all the adrenaline. I missed the I missed the fear and the rush. So I, I and in hindsight all these years later, you know, being much older than I was then and hopefully a little more mature, um, I look back on that in hindsight and go, That's that was an addiction to to adrenaline. Absolutely. I was, I was actually gonna ask you if you had a if you came out of the police force or these times in these these really high stress uh, units with adrenal fatigue um it's it's hard to tell when you're in the middle of it um yeah. i mean i i certainly came out of policing with a, a massive chronic ptsd condition that i didn't know i had yeah. um and and I, I just lived it i lived it and breathed it and and i think Adrenal fatigue, that's a really good question um, because I, I did things after I left tactical policing that people still shake their heads at in disbelief because I, I would, I, I wanted to go in through the door first. I wanted to go to all the dangerous stuff. Um, mm. And I don't think it was adrenal fatigue. I think it was purely addiction. It was addiction to the adrenaline. Um, Isn't that interesting? Yeah, and, and a, lot of, a, a lot of tactical police will say the same. Um, you hear just, a lot of soldiers say that, like when you when I listen yeah. to a lot of podcasts about those that have served in um, Afghanistan or Iraq yeah. or something, they say that it's that, that adrenaline's quite addictive. Being yeah. in a yeah, yeah, I've got a lot of friends still in the network who um, in the SAS network uh, because we were trained by the SAS back in the eighties. So um, I, I, I sadly went to a friend's funeral, an ex SAS guy, a couple of years ago um, in Brisbane. So I went to the wake and I, you know, made a little speech at the wake and, and so on. And um, and I, I'm very honoured to be trusted by these guys. Um, yeah. And they are tough, tough warriors. And they've told me stories that are very similar to what you're saying. Is um, is you know, when you're over there, you want to come home. When you come home, you want to be back over there. And and I think if you know, the best portrayal of that uh, is a movie called The Hurt Locker. Mm. I, I've seen that movie half a dozen times, and I still, yeah, I, I, I relate to it massively. Um, and that's, you know, the, the the main protagonist is a bomb disposal guy, and oh. um, and I was in bomb disposal as well for a while because that was fun. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> Keith, is there anything that you weren't in? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I tell you what, I didn't do. I didn't write traffic tickets. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But see, it's it's funny, Fiona. It's you know, I I never regarded that as anything out of the ordinary because that's just when you live it. It's just what you do, you know. Um, it's fascinating that you say that. Like everyone that I've interviewed, and I've said this before on the podcast, the most dangerous thing that I've ever done is literally just walk across the road. And when I'm interviewing people, one of the reasons why I wanted to do the podcast is because everyone that I'm interviewing has lived such such different lives and had such different experiences to myself and most of the people that I know. Mm. And I find it 
fascinating, but I think that there's also that needs to be celebrated in terms of there are people like yourself and armed forces and everything out there risking their lives literally to protect Aussies. And I think that there's something that that story needs to be told. And I think there's a lot of inspiration that can be deemed, you know, drawn from that as well. Yeah, I, I I agree. Look, I'm in awe of of cops, you know, and 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 I I read stories of things. I actually read something this morning on a closed Facebook support group that we have for police and former police about uh, about two of my friends being held at gunpoint in 1983 in uniform. I'd never known about this, and I'm reading the story, going, man, this is unbelievable, and and the way in which they responded, and you know, the bravery, and uh, and I'm in awe of that sort of stuff. And and one of the really um, interesting things about how life rolls is that I've actually had young police, younger police uh, who are still in the job, contact me after they read my book and reached out to say how much they've admired, they used to admire what I was doing in the job. And when I was actually role modelling myself on cops, I admired and, and you know, so it becomes a, um, a bit of a progression. And it's quite flattering to hear that. And I feel like a bit of a tosser when I say it because it, it's, it's almost arrogant, I think. But it's just it's kind of nice to know. Well, I don't think it's arrogant if people are reaching out to you saying, hey, this is the reality. If, you'd say, if you're sitting there saying without that feedback, oh, yeah, I'm so amazing, people are modelling themselves off me, that's a different thing. But, yeah, yeah. But if people are coming to you and saying your book's inspiring me and, you know, I want to be a copper like you, then that's that's a different story and what you've done is pretty remarkable oh thanks yeah it's it's um yeah it's still hard to um not hard to hear you know i it's hard to it's difficult to put into words but it's um it's very similar to conversations i've had with other police who've been decorated as well you know so i I have some some pretty major decorations for bravery and valor and so on and i never used to be able to say that because for me it was like boasting or bragging um and, and I've had the same conversation with other cops and they go, yeah, actually, yeah, I like wearing them, but I don't really like talking about them because people might think I'm pushing myself forward, you know, um, which is quite interesting. I mean, ben Robert Smith, I, I had the pleasure of meeting Ben a few years ago just after he got his VC, his Victoria Cross, and mm-hmm. he's, the, he's the same. It's really interesting, mm. yeah. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, where were we? <laughs> I don't know. We went down a rabbit hole. You were <laughs> and there was a mention of bond disposals and oh I, yeah, yeah. I yeah. couldn't believe that. But we were talking about um, uh, Russell Cox. Yes, we're talking about uh, adrenaline and and the mm. and the addiction to that. So mm. yes, I never met Cox. Unfortunately, um, do have a grudging respect for him. From what I understand, he's um. He, when he re- was released from jail, uh, when he served his sentences, etc., he's actually completely reformed. Um, I, I'm, I'm told where he's living. I won't say it, but he's mm. certainly he's retired. Um, he's living with his partner and uh, is as straight as a die. And good luck to him. Um, I hope it's the same woman that fell in love with him. I, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. So, the romantic in me, Keith. Yeah, I know. And 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 for all for all my stuff that I've done in my life, I'm a bit of a romantic as well. So you know, I still I still have um, some faith in people, <laughs> not as much some, as I probably used to when oh, I was young. But okay. um, you know, 
Now, this is just part of the whole jaded thing, I suppose. Um, but no, that's, I think it's, if that's the case, you know, I wish him well. I wish him well. It's, so. it's interesting that you talked about the professional respect, although you wanted to catch someone of the calibre in terms of the bank robberies and stuff mm. like that um, and armed robberies. But it was interesting that you talked about there was that, as much as you wanted to get him, there was that level of professional respect because it was almost like that cat and mouse um, aspect of things because he was so professional in regards to what he was doing. I mean, he was breaking yeah. the law, but he was still very professional at breaking the law. Oh, yeah. I mean, and and in those days, I was, I was like him. I was into fitness, you know. I ran, I trained, I kept myself fit because as far as I was concerned, you know, tactical policing was the sharp end of the spear. And, and you needed to be on top of your game if you were confronting people who were on top of theirs. So, you know, and, and that's why I still go, wow, that guy was up every morning. And this is all criminal intelligence that comes out later, of course, but he was up every morning running um, and he would do that before dawn so that in the event the cops raided him at dawn, he would be awake and ready to go. Um, never ran without his firearm. I never went anywhere without mine. Um, you know, so there's, there's this... It's really interesting similarities between professional police at the sharp end of the spear and professional crooks on top of their game, particularly armed robbers. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And you can't help but admire someone who actually commits themselves to their profession, I suppose, as weird as that sounds. Mm. Well, I can understand it from mm. a – I think that if you, particularly if you're – you've at that point in the spear in regards to policing and you've got somebody that constantly evades you, it's sort of like that, I've got to get him, I've got to get him, you know. Mm. It's like the Catch Me If You Can movie. Yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, without yeah. the niceness. Yeah. <laughs> and a few more guns. <laughs> but but there, is, there is one uh, little story I'll tell you. I don't know how much more time we have. and, and I'll, As I'll... much as you want, Keith. I'm oh, going to break cool. these up into a... Um, to a series so i'll do them oh, as okay. like yeah, okay. yeah yeah different stories and i'll just release them over the next couple of weeks and oh cool yeah well, drip feed them well there was there was one and and um <clears throat> excuse me Hang on, before we get into the other story i have a question to ask you please you mentioned that with your awards and you are highly decorated mm. that you you initially found it quite hard to sort of say hey i've been awarded these um, medals and awards yeah what was the catalyst for writing the book um i i actually started writing it because once i realized that uh, once i was able to look back on how my ptsd had formed me as a as a father and a husband and a human being and how it had affected me and um and i looked back on you know the short-term anger and the um, the sadness and the need to be away and isolate myself for a couple of days and the drinking and the, you know, all of the classic stuff about PTSD sufferers. Um, I actually wanted to start writing to give to my two daughters. And, and I didn't set out with the intention of writing a book. I actually started writing a couple of chapters about one of the things I was decorated for. Mm -hmm. um, and then I wrote a couple of other things. And then I just found I enjoyed it so much. I just wanted to start putting things down on paper, yeah, um, as the saying goes. So so I didn't write chronologically. I just wrote as the mood took me. And it was amazing 
on two fronts. It's amazing what came back. Um, mm. And it was amazing how good it made me feel to sit down and do it. And then I shared some of the chapters with a couple of people that I knew and who weren't cops and the um, um, including my girls. And the feedback was just amazing. You know, people were saying, man, you, you just got to keep going with this thing. So it, it took quite a while. It took four or five years or something because, um, as I said before, my writing process is pretty intermittent. <laughs> it's just I'd, I'd put something down when the mood took me. And then we had downsized in, uh, in our house and I packed up a lot of stuff and I found a cardboard box with a heap of my undercover notebooks in it. And I went, right. Wow, you still had them. Yeah, I still had them, yeah. So, so all of the conversation that happens in the book is as it was. I haven't invented it um, because this is it, your book, drug, drugs, guns, and lies. Drugs, guns, Everyone and lies. Everyone needs to go out and read it. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah, I've been very, <laughs> <laughs> well, clearly. Um, <laughs> how is Steven Spielberg going to find me unless people buy it? Um, <laughs> but it was, it was such a, you know, I think catharsis tends to be an overused word, but mm. in this case, it's completely appropriate. Um, it really helped me look back on those days and, and and it helped me frame, you know, why I was affected by PTSD. Not so much drugs, guns and lies, that was undercover. And whilst, you know, and again, it's one of those things people go, wow, you're undercover and you did this and, you know, you sat with bikies and you bought drugs. Yeah, but it was a big adventure as well. Um, and I came out of that relatively unscathed. What happened in the next 10 years was the stuff that really um, messed me over um, from an emotional perspective. And and um, I'm, I'm going to be, well, touch wood, I'm going to be releasing that in the next, I don't know, publishers take a bit of time to get these things to market. But I would hope this time next year the second book will be there. Um, mm-hmm. And that really, that really delves right into, uh, right into PTSD, not just with me, but a lot of my, my friends and colleagues. And um, so that's why I started writing, in essence. And then, of all places, I was in a pub one night, met a, met a few people. I'm a fairly gregarious character. Um, and one of them happened to be a creative writing lecturer at Flinders Uni. So I was talking to him about it, and he offered to smooth out the rough edges, I guess, in my writing. So we communicated with each other over a couple of years, and I'd send things to him. He'd send some edits back. I'd either agree or disagree. You know, so the whole thing just sort of developed organically then. How have your daughters um, received the book and how have they, how has it enabled them to sort of see that different side of you and understand? Well, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. They both love it. Um, I, I gave them the raw script before it was even sent to the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've both said, and I've said in a number of, you know, conversations I've had with people that, that that was one of the main reasons I wrote to help them understand why I was like I was hmm. and they've both said you know dad we actually don't see you the way that you saw yourself um, and they both said I've probably beaten myself up more than I needed to um, but then I look at that and go you know growing up you probably just love your parents unconditionally anyway and you put up with their shit because we're all the same um, so, you know, they, they love the fact that it's been published and, um, and they love the fact that, you know, I've got, a, I suppose, a, uh, an ability now to have genuine, authentic conversations and, and put them out there in the public arena. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's quite, quite nice. 
I think you can love your parents unconditionally, but I still think you can have an objective and retrospective look back over your childhood and sort of say, this was not quite right or, you know, like you can be objective about it as an adult. So I think that if that's interesting that they gave you that feedback because they probably um, did feel that way. Otherwise they probably would have said, well, this explains a lot. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So maybe um, you're still beating yourself up, Keith. Oh, uh, yeah, it's it's it, you're probably right. It's um, you know, it's part of the condition, I guess. And uh, and I'm very very open about about um, mental health and PTSD and depression and anxiety because it's it's just so common, and uh, mm. particularly amongst first responders. And so that's that's been a really positive byproduct. Um, I didn't talk about this to anybody ever. You know, I, I just. I self-medicated. I travelled a lot when I left the police. I resigned because I just I resigned of a broken heart, and that's that's another long story. Um, the, the the police force just you know just changed, and uh, and I didn't feel like I belonged anymore, and I was going to be a lifer. Um, but yeah, so made a decision to go. But I used to travel a substantial amount um, with my corporate roles, and I'd often find myself you know sitting in a hotel room on a balcony looking at the city lights, just, you know, drinking bloody um, way too much alcohol and getting quite morose and depressed and sad and joyless. And and I never spoke to anybody about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm overcompensating for those years, but I'm certainly much more open about mental health and the impacts of, um, of what particularly cops go through. And, and if that can help anybody um, that, that thinks they're by themselves and they, they don't have anyone to talk to, then, hey, great, great outcome for me. Because you've only recently been diagnosed with PTSD, haven't you? It was last yeah. year, wasn't it? Yeah, about a, about a year ago, yeah, formally. Um, I mean, I, I, I went through a number of counsellors. I used to talk to them, but no one actually ever formally diagnosed it um, until the, the person that I started um, dealing with last year, well, which I is think incredibly it's... empowering. Well, I, I was going to say I think it's incredibly um, commendable and empowering that you reached out and recognised that there was an issue. I mean, when you said that although it took a, a while to get that diagnosis, you were speaking to people and I think that that's um, commendable that you recognised yeah, that you. and reached out. Thank you. Yeah, it, it's a matter of finding the right the right person as well, I think, mm. um, sort of like marriage. Mm. <laughs> you know, you have to experiment <laughs> a bit. Um so i take it you rectified the uh one person when the gun was (laughs) quite quickly yeah i uh yeah i I gave it my best shot (laughs) for those of you that don't know what we're talking about go back and listen to the first episode (laughs) with keith (laughs) oh yeah yeah yeah, that's right i remember your reaction when i told you um Oh my god! I thought that was so funny. <laughs> see, see now this is a teaser to actually get people to go back and and uh, and get some traffic in that first episode. Um, well, the tra- the first episode's done very well. So <laughs> has it? Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good. It has. <laughs> um, Talk to me about your um your medals that you've won and the honors. Um, yeah. Uh, so I have um, I have two Queensland Police Valor Award medals and. Uh, and they're called the Valor Award, but they are in fact medals. And uh, and I'm the only one in Queensland police history that has two of them, I believe. Um, so tell me what you got them for. 
One was for a, uh, a shooting, a tragic incident where we, um, again, in tactical, we raided a house. Now, I'll, I'll actually go through this in more detail at some point in the future, but in essence, um, we raided a house, number one most wanted armed robber, um, Paul James Mullen, who uh, opened fire on us and, uh, and our vests, this is back in 1987, the bullet-resistant vests we were wearing were nowhere um, as near as effect, nearly as effective as they are now. They weren't designed to stop rifle fire, and he had a rifle. And uh, he shot one of my team members five times. Um, Peter died oh that God. morning in hospital. He shot another one of my colleagues, who was my best friend, who I was actually um, sharing a unit with and working with and so on. Um, badly wounded him, and then two of us um, shot and killed the offender. Um, and my that, that that was a huge start of my PTSD. Um, I had survivor guilt, which is mm. a you know classic, and um, didn't realise it. And at any rate, that yeah, that that was very sad. So um, we were we were decorated for a few of us were decorated for that with a valor award um, some years later. And then um, I was also um, decorated with one for. Um, an MLC siege, <clears throat> MLC building, and again, which is a whole story in itself. Um, so essentially, I uh, responded to a shots fired call, gee, about 1993, I think it was, or 92. Um, Saturday afternoon, minding my own business with my uh, my colleague, heading back to the office, and essentially a, a, a male person had walked into the MLC building in the centre of the city with a, a rifle and a cardboard box containing what I later found out to be 16 sticks of jellic night and uh, an army webbing pack and uh, fired shots and then demanded that the security guard leave. And he went in, this, this guy went in there with the intention of blowing the building up and uh, killing himself. So I responded and found myself inside, um, handed my firearm to another cop who was there and went in and spent an hour and a half with, uh, with Frank negotiating him out of the whole thing. And Were I you was, a trained negotiator? No, God, no. No, I was uh, I was uh, an assaulter uh, in tactical. An assaulter means someone who actually cracks in through the front door. I had heard negotiators talk to people, but I no, I didn't really. That's a bit different, though, to being trained as a negotiator, though, isn't it? What, yeah. What made you go in? Oh, I still don't know. I honestly <laughs> do not know. I, I went there with the intention of shooting him if I had to, um, because by that time I was pretty well. Um, remorseless, I guess. Um, after Peter was killed, I, I just changed my whole mindset, and um, and I I actually went through a stage where I I became quite homicidal. I think I was looking forward to an opportunity to shoot somebody else. Wow! Um, just to to a pure pure revenge, um, and I just figured any anybody who produced a firearm towards me or any of my people was going to go to God. Do you think that that survivor's guilt played into it in terms of? Um putting yourself in danger actively putting yourself in danger yeah i do I, I, absolutely um i i probably wanted to prove to myself that i could not make mistakes i see i i, I blamed myself for peter's death because or peter's murder by mullen because i i'd actually planned the operation it was it's totally crazy um and it was totally out of my control. You know, we, we'd all we'd all developed the plan, and things just went badly. Um, 
but I, I was right in the middle of all of the survivor guilt and I just wanted to, I don't know whether it was, um, I wouldn't call it a death wish, but I didn't care. Um, I actually got to the stage where I wouldn't wear a bulletproof vest on a job, you know, and, and, I, and I look back on those days and go, what the hell was I thinking? Um, and I, I just wanted to be right in the forefront of everything. But this, this was some years after I'd left tactical policing and I was actually running an undercover operation and I was in a major crime area. But I, I went there because, you know, I just felt that that's what cops do. And, and cops respond to these things all the time, you know. I was just lucky that I had some tactical training. But I, I went in and, um, yeah, for whatever reason, gave my gun to another guy who was with me. It's, actually, it's not all doom and gloom. There are actually some funny parts of this story. And but it's it's worth probably a session in itself. Um, okay. Well, I think that I think that might be a good spot to end this episode, and then okay. we can go into another episode and talk <laughs> about the MLC building. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I'm I'm quite happy to talk about that because it it had a good resolution, um, and uh, and I'm still quite touched by it. So yeah. Okay. Well, let's call. do that. Everyone, go out and purchase Drugs, Guns and Lies. It's Keith's book. Go back and listen to episode one of the podcast with Keith if you haven't listened to that yet. And don't forget to subscribe if you're interested in listening to more of episodes of the podcast because then you won't miss out. Indeed. Thanks, Fiona. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. Bye.